I'm going to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Revelation 5, and I'm going to dismiss the children to Children's Church. Revelation chapter 5, and really I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 through 10, though I'll sum up the whole chapter. The title will be, Worthy is the Lamb. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, it's my prayer today that as we gather and as we open up your word to this glorious account, this otherworldly unveiling of your plan and of the present time, that you would stir our hearts toward action that you would mobilize us as your church advancing your kingdom, that it would have the exact intended effect that you had for that original audience, that we would be encouraged, that we would be comforted, that we would be prompted toward zeal and pouring our lives out, and that our love for Christ would be um, just fanned like a flame and that you would set us ablaze with a passion to usher in His kingdom. And we pray Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Would You give us a glimpse of heaven as we look at this passage? Lord, we pray these things in Your Son's name. Amen. This is a back-to-back message. Last week, I was in Revelation chapter 4. And as you know, the chapter breaks you see in your Bible are not canonical. They're not inspired by the Spirit. This is a passage that really is an extension of last week's passage as we looked at John witnessing the throne room of heaven. And so last week, I'll just give a slight summary, and then I just want to jump right into chapter 5 and continue where we left off. Last week, we looked at Revelation 4, and we considered that what John and the church needed to see as they were being persecuted and marginalized, and as the threat of widespread persecution in the Roman Empire was reaching sort of a fever pitch, what did the church need to see? What did John in exile, this patriarch apostle, what did he need to see? And what we saw was that he needed a vision, the veil being lifted, of heaven. And really, the book of Revelation is the answer to the church's prayer that Jesus instructed his disciples, which is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So throughout the whole book, it is an optimistic account of how the kingdom of God will come on earth and his will will be exercised as it is in heaven. That's where the book is going. That's where it ends when heaven proceeds down to earth. And if it's about this, you would expect that we would see the kingdom of God in heaven first in the book. The readers would probably want to know right away what's happening on earth. What's going on with Caesar and persecution and what's coming next? But the book starts where it all begins, which is the throne of God. Everything being directed in God's story operates from the throne of God, the center of heaven where the kingdom is being advanced. 
above the spread of evil and above the chaos of the earth, there is God on His throne. And I'm just going to continue the vision by delving straight into chapter 5 because the vision didn't end with just the exclamation of praise for God on His throne. John keeps seeing things in heaven. And I'm going to start right in verse 1 right now. This is what John writes. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who is seated on the throne a scroll. That could also be translated a book as a scroll was the ancient book. Last week we considered that John was in the Spirit And he went through a door that was opened into heaven. What a great privilege that must have been on behalf of the church on earth. And as he went through heaven's door, his attention wasn't caught up with streets of gold or pearly gates or who he would see there in the midst of the assembly. The first thing John sees, the first thing that strikes him is the very center, the main thing in heaven He sees a throne, and he sees him who is seated upon it. And I explained last week, I can't give you a a cliffhanger for this sermon, that this one who sits upon the throne properly is God the Father on the throne. And all of heaven in Revelation 4 is also centered around this throne, giving glory and praise to God the Father. So that's the the proper vision. When you think of God on His throne, this is Yahweh, God, very God. And Revelation 5 is an extension of the same scene taking place in Revelation 4. John is being revealed to him what things that are, and later it will be what will take place. And in this scene, John is simply writing down all he saw. He's just a scribe. He sees one thing, he writes it down. He sees another thing, he records it for the church. And this will be sent out like an epistle to the seven churches and to the church through the age. And the first thing he saw was the throne and God the Father. He sort of extended beyond that and he saw the elders around the throne, which we looked at how there's different ways to look at that, but there seems to be good indication that this was the triumphant saints around the throne. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints gathered around the throne, casting their rewards and their victory, giving glory to God. And we saw that there were angelic guardians around the throne, the four living creatures, similar to the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel. And we saw that all of heaven, this whole scene, is just centered on the Holy One, on His throne, and all they're doing is giving Him praise. Who was and is and is to come. And now Revelation 5 continues with what John saw next, which is why it says, Then I saw. What did he see? Look what it says. Then I saw. Where was he looking? Last we checked, he was looking at the throne. And notice it says he saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The right hand is highly significant because it was the place of greatest authority for a king. 
John is fixated on the right hand because in the right hand is contained this book, this scroll. And really, this is the key to the unfolding of the rest of the book of Revelation. This is not a chapter you want to sort of skim through in order to get to the other parts of the book. None of it is. But this really is the, the central part that unlocks the rest of Revelation. He says he saw writing on this book on the outside and on the inside. A scroll from a king would typically contain his edict or his decree, and he would have it in his hand ready to give to one who was worthy to open it before the people. This book is officially sealed. And it's sealed with seven seals. The word seven is the number of completion or fullness. It's completely sealed. No one has seen into this scroll that God the Father has on His throne. And what's unusual about it is it says that it's, it's written on both sides of the scroll. There's writing that He can see on both sides, which was unusual in the ancient world. There's no real consensus that I could see um, from different commentators on why exactly there's writing on two sides. Many seem to think that the point that's being made is that this is a packed and lengthy scroll. It's... It's not a mere summary. It's not an outline. It's not a survey. This is a profound scroll, the contents inside of it. The fact that both sides are written on indicates there is no detail missed or left out of its content. No angel and no man has ever read from this completely sealed Scroll, And it's implied that no one can open it without divine permission. So the question arises, what is written in God's book? What exactly is this scroll? There's some different perspectives on this. We don't have time to really chase down all, all the rabbits about this matter, what people have speculated There seems to be an overarching interpretation that the church has always sort of summed it up as, and it's that this scroll that needs to be opened, it really makes sense with the direction that Revelation is going. It is the plan of God to consummate human history. It's the title deed to the earth to finish the kingdom, to consummate everything. It kind of resembles a scroll that Daniel had when God told him to seal up the things in the book. Now the time is coming to unseal the book. So that's sort of the idea, the bookends of Old and New Testament revelation here. The plan of God to consummate human history. That's where revelation is going. And in this consummation is the consummation of His kingdom on the earth. It's the finishing of the building of His church. It's the final judgment. It's Satan's defeat. It's the triumph over evil. It's the reversing of the curse and the overcoming of the last enemy, death. It's the final resurrection. It's the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Contained in this scroll, this book, are the climactic events in God's story of history toward the end. Once this book is opened, 
or once this scroll is unraveled, the king's agenda is going to be carried out to its appointed end. Very significant scroll from the king on the throne. This becomes more clearly seen, in case you think that's a little out of left field, it becomes more clearly seen when you read ahead in chapter 6 and onward throughout the course of the book. Spoiler alert, the, the seals come off the scroll. When you go into chapter 6, and I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but you start to see that as the seals come off the scroll, that is when forces are unleashed from the throne of God onto the earth. Things get unrestrained on the earth. Things get sent to the earth. The plan of God is carried out throughout the chapter 6 and also through the rest of the content of the book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of summarize chapter 6 and the rest of the book just to give us an idea of the magnitude of this scroll and what it contains. Without getting too into it, I'm not going to turn to passages. Let's just lay out Revelation from this point forward. What's going to happen when this scroll is opened? In chapter 6, when the seals are successively, success, successively broken off, with each breaking there, with each breaking, there is an unleashing of force upon the earth. There's conquest. There's war. There's bloodshed. There's famine due to food shortages. All of these things should get our attention. Every age of the church has looked at these and gone, huh. There's God's judgment against His enemies of God's people, and they're praying for vengeance. And once the seals are all broken off, there's a series of other events and judgments that unfold throughout the books. You read about trumpets and bowls. And there's intensifying judgment. And the world system is given over to even more evil. And Satan is more active before he is judged. That's a, a summary of what's coming out from this scroll. And it's not all gloom in God's final plan. That would it's usually what we think of when we think of apocalypse and unveiling. But really, I would say that it's not even the main thing. Gloom is not the main point of the book of Revelation, although the wrath of God is an emphasis. Remember that world history is ultimately redemptive history. And its conclusion will be the consummation of God's redemptive plan on the earth. That is also contained in this scroll. The fulfillment of all His covenants. The restoration of the earth. Revelation is often described as being such a grisly book, and it is a grisly, bloody book. But ultimately, it's an optimistic book that's aiming toward the glory of God revealed in consummating His redemption. Remember that one driving theme of the book, which Jesus calls upon the churches, is the overcoming of God's people. That they will be able to stand and be ready when He comes. And throughout the course of Revelation, as you're reading it, you see these judgments, but you also see glimpses over and over of God's redemptive activity. You see His last activities as He advances in the final stretches of the kingdom. You see the church militant becoming the church triumphant. The salvation of souls from every nation and tribe. The salvation of the Jewish people. 
The rising of witnesses who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. As I was mentioning last week, this this book of Revelation was not written merely for just curious minds who wanted to know the future. It was written to encourage in an hour of tribulation. And the encouragement is the success of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And above all, the main event that is unveiled in God's plan for consummating history is the ultimate unveiling, the physical and glorious second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with His triumphant saints and His angels. The joy of all joys for believers and the terror of all terrors for unbelievers. Now as I sum all that up and take a breath, there is such glory even in just a summary of the book. And notice I didn't unpack all the, this chart and draw all these specific, very dogmatic assertions. I didn't get into rapture positions or millennial camps or any of that. There is glory in this book that any orthodox believer can see. How much more glorious is it going to be when it actually unfolds in all its fullness? That's what's in this book on the throne. A marvelous plan of God's redemption. And we're tempted probably right now just to give a hearty amen and and just leave it at that. Please don't do that. I'm compelled by our text to get back to the Apostle John. Remember at this point in heaven, all John sees at this point is the book being closed and sealed. And it's sealed up and unopened. Then we read about a serious search that happens in heaven. A serious search. Look at verse 2. John writes, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? We don't know who this mighty angel is. I think we could pick up on a few things, though. For one thing, a powerful angel is saying this about the scroll. That's what caught my attention. Not even you can open it? This powerful angel? No one could really open this scroll as the indication. I kind of think of a scene in, I don't know if you've seen, The Sword in the Stone, the old King Arthur animated classic, where... The king has died and there's no heir to the throne and so magically this sword is sort of embedded in this anvil and the rightful heir to the throne, the person who would become king is the one who could take out the sword and the movie goes on and it's a little silly but it shows these strong knights in armor and they're all trying to pull at the throne even at the same time and no one can do it. And then later on in the movie, um, Arthur, not even really trying, just pulls it out. And they're all just amazed. I remember thinking of that. I I sort of think of that here with even the most powerful angels are like, who's going to open this book? We read that he asked the question with a loud voice. And it says it extends throughout the universe. He shouts the question for all of heaven's courts to hear. And later on it says throughout earth and under the earth. Who can open the scroll? 
Who is worthy? There's gravity in this question, meaning that the angel must have known what is at stake. Because if this scroll can't open, all of the redemptive plan can't happen. Worthy for one thing because who has the capability to open the book? That's what I sort of highlighted with the King Arthur analogy. But also, more specifically, who has the authority to open such a book? Who can come up here to the throne of God and take this book and open it? This is His plan for redemptive history. And it's not just that whoever opens it is going to read it. It's whoever opens it is going to execute it and bring it to pass. Whoever is worthy to open this book will control human history, bringing it to its appointed end with the ultimate victory of God. So I just want us to feel the gravity. I'm really kind of setting this up to feel the gravity and the weightiness of this question. Who is worthy to open this scroll and consummate God's plan. Verse 3, deafening silence. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No mighty angel None of the holy living creatures as close as they are in proximity to the throne as guardians. No saint in heaven. I'm thinking, I'm just imagining all the saints through the ages up to this point. Moses is standing there saying to Elijah, it's not me. Not opening that. David can't open it. None of the prophets, though they were known for revelation, they can't open this. New Testament saints, John the Baptist can't open it. Peter can't open it. Paul can't open it. No one in heaven can open it. And not just heaven, but it goes on and says that the search happens on the earth. And it even says under the earth just to emphasize that no one could be found. No church can be found. No pastor, no great leader, no nation, no governments can be found to finish this agenda. Rome can't open this book. Caesar can't open this book. Washington can't open this book. And I think this highlights the vanity of man to determine the world's destiny. It highlights how all are utterly unworthy. And in the verse that follows, I think it's interesting, John doesn't write this time what he sees. Rather, he can't help but transparently tell his readers what he feels. Look at verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The Apostle John, the the last surviving apostle at this point, the great patriarch of the church, breaks into weeping. And 
not only just shedding a tear, it says that he wept loudly. I see wailing happening here. The idea is that in, in modern terms, John broke down. This is uncontrollable sobbing. It's easy to, to glance at a verse like this when you're just reading your Bible and just continue on. But I want us to pause and consider for a moment that this man was deeply, deeply moved to sorrow. I think it's common for all humans to relate to this uncontrolled sorrow, whether in, with a person or in private. Most humans have reached this point of weeping with such grief and devastation that your whole inner emotions can't be bottled up, but they need to come out and find an outlet in weeping. It's the human experience. That's where John is at right here. Weeping. Now, I'll be honest. I, I used to read this when I was younger, and I, I used to be more perplexed than sympathetic of the Apostle. I, I used to sort of read this and... You know, just from a superficial glance, I'd kind of be like, John, it, you just got introduced to this scroll. You, you know there's more to come. Just wait it out. See what's going to happen. It's going to be okay, John. Why are you weeping? The more I've studied it and considered the context of John and his readers, the more it's made sense. First of all, I think time has passed. It's not just that this happened really quick. If he's weeping... There's something that led to that. This search for someone who was worthy must have been happening for moments and then maybe minutes. Maybe it was hours. I don't know. But he was convinced in the Spirit. I don't know what happens in a vision if you're just caught up in emotions with the moment or what's going on, but John had time to weep. Also, I want us to consider John's context. Remember that John and the churches have suffered much for the gospel. John left all to follow Christ, and he's an older man, probably in his 90s, and he sacrificed much for Christ and for the churches, for the gospel. He's seen evil in the Roman Empire go from bad to worse, and he knows as an older man it's probably going to get even worse in the time to come. And God is this apostle in the Spirit and allows him to feel the weightiness of a ghastly and shocking proposition. What if there is no triumphant consummation in history? What if all this sacrifice and all this persecution is up in the air? What if there is no defeat of sin and Satan and death? What if the churches, which were dwindling at this point and struggling, what if their lampstands would be put out? And there would be no more effective witness. No rewards. No reigning with Christ. That's hard for our minds to consider, but I think it gives us a glimpse into what John felt. Can you imagine what it would be like as you look at this dark culture that we live in? And it's, it gets discouraging if you saw this dark culture and what it would be like with the sorrows of this life to get the privilege of entering heaven's door only to have unveiled to you 
that the victory of the kingdom of God is indefinitely postponed. Now, no certainty. We're looking for someone. Not everything's kind of aligned yet. We've got to see what's going to happen, how this is going to play out. I think we would be moved to confusion, to sinking sorrow and discouragement. I think that's where John is at. And he weeps loudly because none is worthy. Now we know this is just a vision, and John has, there's an objective to it that God is teaching. But I can't help but also think that there are many Christians who are prone to thinking with such despair at times, even just being on earth. Sometimes Christians become so fixated on problems that exist in the American church, so pessimistic regarding the moral decline of the world and the culture and society, the surrounding culture. There's missionaries in dark corners of the mission field who feel hopeless at so little or even no fruit, so much unbelief. It's easy to focus so much on these things, and these things should grieve us, it's easy to fall into the pitfall of letting sorrow overcome joy and cloud us from having the eyes of faith. I heard an account about Martin Luther once. This could be urban legend. It could be true. I've heard it from different sources, but it's a telling lesson. Martin Luther, in the midst of the Reformation, was one day feeling very discouraged. And he was just at his table in his home with his head down, thinking about his enemies, thinking about how dark the times were and how slowly moving the Reformation was going. And suddenly his wife, Catherine, entered the room wearing all black. And she had the children wearing all black, like they're going to a funeral. And the story goes that Martin Luther goes, Oh, Catherine, who, who's dead? To which she replied, Well... God must be dead because my husband, Martin Luther, would never feel this way if he was alive. It's a a humorous yet wise point. Martin Luther says he laughed at it and kind of gathered himself and was like, yeah, God is alive. What am I doing here? That's the kind of advice a wife would give. We're not supposed to grieve as those who have no hope. I knew a pastor once who would, whenever someone was kind of moping, he would say, who knocked God off his throne? You know, just, oh yeah, right. Very pastoral. (laughs) Back to John. I don't know how long this went on. I imagine it had to be at least more than a few moments with the searching and with the weeping. But we know God had a purpose in having John feel the weight of this vain search. Because he was preparing him for a dramatic and glorious interruption. And this is the interruption that you and I need time and time again. Look at verse 5. We're going to move faster through the verses. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's finally some good news. Weep no more. 
Notice something about the elder's words. Not only does he tell him to not weep, but he says, behold. Behold just simply means to look. John, remember why you're here. You're supposed to be looking. Look. Look again. Someone has been found who can open the book and finish the story and execute it. The lion and the tribe of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And we know, of course, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what good news it must have been to hear him described like a strong lion. This, this goes back to Genesis 49 with the prophecy of Judah and the king, where he's mentioned to be a lion upon his prey. This one who will take the scroll is strong and powerful and dominant. And more in view here, he is the rightful king. It says he's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The scepter belongs to him. The whole of the Old Testament traced to his descent. And this is the culmination of the royal line. In the language here is actually sort of a play on words. It's sort of a paradoxical truth that's contained here. Note that he's described as coming from Judah, meaning he came from the descent of Judah through David, through Jesse's shoot. This implies the Davidic line, but yet he's also the root of David, implying he comes before David, and David, in a play on words, comes from him. His humanity proceeds from the seed of David, but with regard to his deity, David and all proceed from him. Such a one could be described as such a dominant animal like a lion. He has conquered. And it's important to notice that the announcement that he has conquered is in the past tense. He has conquered because the victory is already won. This is probably peculiar sounding in light of the victory that we know Revelation is leading up to. It's all leading toward victory. But here it says he has conquered, and you see this past tense throughout the book. People are often prone to speaking of the victory that is yet to come. And indeed, we should speak of it as yet to come. But what John is about to see sort of afresh is why he will be victorious. Theologians speak of the victory of Christ as already and not yet. And many tend to fixate on the not yet part. It's going to happen. He's going to come. He's going to be victorious. And that's all true. And here John will receive a powerful reminder of the victory that is already. The not yet happens because of the already. Maybe for a moment, I'm just thinking as I read this, maybe for a moment John was caught up in the moment of this vision. Maybe he wondered if the not yet had happened. A lion sounds very triumphant. It preys on its enemies. But did, God, did Jesus come to judge the world? Lions devour. They conquer through strength and force. Did, did he come back? Is that what I'm hearing right now? Is he, did he judge the Roman Empire? Is he 
going to finish building his church? Has he finally judged Satan? Is the resurrection of the saints about to happen? I'm sort of just speculating John's thought process. He hears about a lion, and as he wipes his tears away, he must look. That's where verse 6 makes it interesting, because he doesn't see a lion at all. He actually doesn't see Christ as a lion. He looks, and look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's interesting what happens here. Note that John never actually sees him as a lion. He probably expected to see a lion. Instead, he turns and he sees Jesus as a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb as though it had been slain. In other words, slaughtered, grisly lamb. He knew what this meant. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, knew what this meant. He needed to be reminded, and we all need to be reminded, that Jesus has already conquered when He laid down His life. Satan, in a great sense, has already been defeated by Him. Sin has been defeated by Him. The present evil age has been defeated by Him. Death has been defeated by Him. He is already presently victorious over all these things because He defeated them in His perfect work on Calvary's cross. He has conquered all that would threaten us. He is the sacrificial Passover Lamb whose redemptive substitutionary work on the cross has accomplished once for all all the redemption of all God's elect and also the redemption of the whole world from the curse. That's the victory John needs to see right now. This is what gives him worthiness to open the book. God who is just would have no reason to complete a redemptive plan of history if there's no redemption. He can't fulfill any promise of restoration if there's no restorer. Had it not been for this Messiah who paid it all. And note the Lamb is as though it had been slain. He had been slaughtered. But now He is risen. And He's alive. And He he overcame the grave. And the resurrection reveals that God the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice. He alone, by virtue of His person and work, is qualified to take control of both opening the scroll and executing its intended ends of redemption. Please note something else that's marvelous here. Last week we considered the sea of glass that went around the throne. And we considered that in heaven it was very intentional that there be an expanse between God on the throne and all of heaven's inhabitants. Even the holiest living creatures are in expanse. Those on thrones are on lesser thrones. There's an expanse and there's even guardians around the throne so that no one can irreverently come before 
the throne. There is a God is holy other. He's totally set apart as the center of heaven. But note, this lamb is in between the throne and the four living creatures. He's between the throne and the four living creatures. These living creatures who had eyes all over them, nothing past their scrutiny. This one is let through. He too is separate and like no one else in heaven. He too deserves an expanse. He's described further in verse 6. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven again is the number of completion. It's just sort of describing the fullness of this lamb. He has horns that reflect the fullness of power as horns were used to inflict wounds and demonstrate dominance. This lamb, having seven horns, shows the fullness of power. He is the omnipotent lamb. Seven eyes conveys He is all-seeing, the omniscience of Christ. Nothing surprises Him. The four living creatures were kind of all-seeing, but not like this one. Nothing surprises Him. He has perfect insight, perfect wisdom, and that's a good quality for one who's going to open the book of God. And the fullness of the Spirit is seen as He contains all of the Spirit knows and the fullness of the spirit is with this lamb the triune godhead is within this scene in agreement of his worthiness this is all an an invincible combination of qualities for one who would take control of history's appointed end he is worthy and it's amazing enough that he he steps into the expanse between the throne and all of heaven. What happens next is even more awe-inspiring. Verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. I don't want to miss the, the magnitude of this dramatic moment that John is seeing. First it says he went. Like he's, he's still walking. He's going toward that throne. Remember, we said the creatures around the throne guard it from anyone approaching, as cherubs did in the Garden of Eden and as the emblems on the Ark of the Covenant. They guard the glory of God, but He's let through. And even in all their splendor, they don't approach the throne. But the Lamb walks right up to it. And not just to the throne, He goes to the highest place of authority. He goes to the right hand of God. And notice, no request is made. No extending His hands that it might be given to Him. But rather, it records, He simply walks up and takes the scroll. Remember what this means. He's taken it from the right hand, which signifies the place of greatest authority. He's taken it from God the Father's hands And the Father has led him. He will take the reins of human history. 
The title deed to the earth and the right to establish His kingdom is given to Him. And I think it's crucial that we understand that this symbolic scene that John is witnessing is not a future event to take place. There are many future things in Revelation, and this is not one of them. He's not speaking of a grand moment that's yet to come. Just wait for Jesus to take control. He is witnessing a present heavenly reality. The event symbolized is none other than the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has died. He is risen. And He rightfully ascends to the right hand of God. I don't think we ever we should talk more about the ascension of Christ. It's such a marvelous doctrine. It's not just speaking that He ascended into the sky. It's that He ascended to the throne. John witnessed the ascension. He was there with the other disciples, and he saw Jesus ascend into the sky and disappear. This is often what we picture when we think about the ascension of Christ. We think of Him going up. Have you ever thought about the other side to the ascension? What did it look like from heaven's view? Not simply Him leaving the earth, but when He came into heaven. I hope we get, I don't know what we're going to get to see when we get to heaven as far as all the details. I, I hope we get to see a replay of what that looked like. When God the Son, in flesh and blood, with the scars and the nails pierced hands and everything, beheld by all the angels, all the Old Testament saints looking on, and Jesus came back to heaven. And He approached the throne of God the Father and sat down with the Father's full approval. Not with hesitance, but because it was His own divine right. This is the ascension of Christ. This is what He told His disciples when He rose again. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Me. That that wasn't just a figure of speech. I don't think we contemplated enough. R.C. Sproul used to say, that he was always bothered by the fact that Christians do a really good job observing Good Friday. They do a really good job observing Resurrection Day. But they don't give due celebration of Ascension Day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It can also be said, He reigns. He reigns indeed. What an encouragement this scene would be to John and to his readers who were suffering under the most powerful empire on earth. Before they needed to hear about things to come, they needed to be reminded about the things that are. Jesus is, at the present time, the King of heaven and earth. John sees the Lamb take the scroll to bring history to its appointed end. And not just the last days, but everything from the time He assumed the throne 2,000 years ago up until this very day, June 12, 2022 and onward, Jesus has been in control of history. 
And we're not waiting for this. We're waiting for the consummation. But it's happening live. Jesus is advancing His kingdom. He's directing the affairs of nations and people and events to His appointed ends for His kingdom. Every occurrence is within divine providence. And Jesus Himself in His present office is executing every detail. All authority is given to Him. This overwhelmed me thinking about this because we often speak of the sovereignty of God. Often with regard to our theology proper, thinking of God the Father. But we also ought to confess with equal emphasis the sovereignty of Christ. He is on the throne. Now, ascribing sovereignty to Christ might make some Christians wince a little bit because it's rarely stressed in our circles. They know by creed He sits at the right hand of God. They know by title He's called Lord. But rarely do many Christians fully consider that all that these realities encompass. In fact, for the one who fears ascribing too much sovereignty to Christ or that is going too far, I would suggest then that the book of Revelation counters such thinking by reminding its readers from chapter 1 to the very end, over and over, He is already King and that He's doing all of it. In fact, the announcement of His reign is announced throughout the book before the, the end even comes. It's announced that He reigns. Chapter 11, which is sort of in the middle of the book, states the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. In fact, the book even hints that even our highest views of God's supremacy fall short to the reality. We can't fully comprehend the sovereignty of Christ. At the very end of the book, in chapter 19, in His second coming, it says that on His head are many diadems. You could jot it down and look it up later. Chapter 19, verse 12. Many diadems. The idea is incredible sovereignty. Sovereignty stacked upon sovereignty, stacked upon sovereignty onward. And it says He's given a name that no one knows but Him. In other words, no one has the faintest idea how sovereign and how majestic this King is. Church family, I want to exhort us to remember that Jesus is the sovereign King. To the wind with anxieties and grumblings about the news or about the dark hour we live in. Jesus is controlling history exactly where it needs to be. And exactly where it needs to go. All we're called to do is have faith. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. Overcome. Because He's overcome. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now the rest of chapter 5 doesn't really require much explanation. After the Lamb takes the scroll and is shown to be worthy... He's rendered praise for seven whole verses. That's really the rest of the chapter. I decided I'm simply going to conclude with the next few verses, just sort of reading them, because it's heaven's reaction 
to this great and marvelous reality we read about. And then I'll just draw out one key insight from it to wrap it up. Beginning in verse 8, look at heaven's reaction to the Lamb taking the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Upon taking control of the throne of heaven, Jesus is ascribed worthiness. He's ascribed all glory and honor fit for a king. This should be a slam dunk against any cult that would deny the deity of Christ as he shares this praise and is on the throne with the Father. He's ascribed this as God's equal, God very God, yet man very man in his resurrected body that's been slain. He's the worthy lamb. And the one thing I want to sort of draw out from these praises, and this will sort of conclude everything, the one thing I want to draw out from heaven's praise here is the the encouragement that John and his readers and you and I need to be reminded of. Look in verse 9 very carefully. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Remember earlier John's weeping. When he considered the state of the churches and the state of evil in the world and that the kingdom through the church seemed bleak, what he needed to see to stop his weeping was not a revelation of the church persevering. What he needed to see and be reminded of is that the church is overcoming and the gospel's success is as good as done because the risen and reigning Jesus already purchased His people. In other words, John and the churches and you and I can be emboldened all the more in our witness because of the reality that the work is done. The mission field will not be barren at last. The church will continue on till He comes. The church preaches the Gospel and endures persecution, not because we hope that more will be saved, but because there are yet more to be saved. The fields are white for harvest. There's work yet to be revealed. As some Gospel preachers often say, the Lamb will receive the full reward of His sufferings. I think of Acts 18 when Paul's about to leave Corinth, and God says to him in a vision, keep on teaching the people. I have many in this city. There's people yet in this city to be saved. There's people yet in the book of life whose testimonies are still being made. And that's an exciting thought in the midst of persecution and when things look bleak. Not all the elect are yet in the fold, but they're going to be. People might spurn us for preaching the gospel, but for those who are going to be saved, it's going to be the best news they've ever heard. Wouldn't you want to be the one to deliver it? It can be your children 
It can be your neighbor. It can be a coworker. It can be a tribe of people in the world that you are called to support or maybe even be sent to. The Lamb has purchased His people. Therefore, don't weep. Join in heaven's celebration and rejoice. Be bold and be stirred with zeal to do His work. This is the revelation that will unfold through the rest of the book. This is the revelation that you and I need to see before we understand anything else that's yet to come. That all things are in the hands of our God who is on the throne and further in the hands of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb. Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You, Lord, that the work is done. It is finished as You said on the cross. We thank You and we ascribe worthiness to You. We want to join in heaven's anthem and center ourselves around Christ in this church. We want the whole Christ, the Lion and the Lamb. Would You help us to continually live for Him in these days that seem bleak and dark. Make us the light. Make us the lampstand to shine until He comes. We pray this and that He would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.